Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show is an exploration on acquiring, operating, and growing small companies through conversations with business owners and private investors. You can learn more and stay up to date on this podcast, our weekly newsletter, and print publication, The Operator's Handbook at alexbridgman.com. And follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. Before the episode, I want to tell you really quickly that we are running an audience survey to learn more about our audience and look for feedback on improving the show. The last one we did was September 2021, and this show has just about doubled since then. So it's a good chance for us to get more feedback and learn how our audience has changed since then. It's really quick. It's a Google form. It only takes two minutes. There's a link in the description for this episode. And I really hope you can fill it out because it's really, really helpful for us to get feedback on the podcast and how to improve. And it's kind of interesting. There's not really a great natural way for you as a podcast listener to give us feedback. With an email newsletter, you can hit reply or find the author and reach out that way, which you can do on the podcast. But there's not any real personal information that you're telling iTunes or Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you're listening on about you. No one is asking you for your LinkedIn or your job role or what have you. And so surveys are the best way we have to learn more about our audience as a podcast. So real quickly, it's only two minutes. It's a Google form. It should be in the description. I really appreciate you sharing your feedback and helping us improve the show. Thank you. And now on to the episode. My guests on this episode are Jalen Ross and Orlando Remack, co-founders of Cam Collective, a holding company for association management companies like HOAs, founded in April 2022. Today, they have four member companies. I was lucky enough to meet Orlando during a trip to Ohio two years ago before he had started Camp Collective, and I've thoroughly enjoyed getting to know him and Jalen. We talk about being intentionally decentralized while remaining focused on one industry and business model, focusing on growing revenue versus achieving cost savings, looking for ways to automate processes, hiring at a holding company level, and about creating a partnership versus being solo partners. I'm sure you'll be able to tell very quickly, but Jalen and Orlando, beyond being partners, are also clearly very good friends and are very fun to chat with. I hope you enjoy this episode with Jalen in Orlando. As a Think Like an Owner listener, there's a good chance you would also enjoy the Fort podcast hosted by Chris Powers. Chris is the founder of Fort Capital, an industrial real estate private equity firm in Fort Worth, Texas, and his weekly podcast hosts guests from real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and more. I was lucky enough to meet Chris at the second Capital Camp, and I came away thinking he was the smartest and most thoughtful person there. If you listen to his podcast, you'll already know this, and if you don't, I highly suggest giving his show a listen. Here's Chris Powers in today's Q&A to talk about his podcast, lessons learned, and more. What should a new listener expect to learn by listening to the Ford podcast? I think a listener should expect to hear an interesting conversation. One, because I am an entrepreneur and a founder myself. I have been since I was 18 years old. And I'm interviewing entrepreneurs and founders and owners and executives. And so I think I have a lens and a way of questioning folks that very often I could be the guest on uh, these episodes. So it's a line of questioning that I think is unique. Obviously, we cover uh, real estate, entrepreneurship, and investing. You know, while I'm in real estate, I think of myself more as an entrepreneur. And so new listeners are going to get a great flavor on some of the best entrepreneurs from around the country. I go deep on certain topics. And it's a great flavor of going really deep and then asking really simple questions that open up uh, great answers from these peoples. And, you know, every now and again, we can tap into their soft side and their more personal side that a lot of folks don't often get to hear about, which is 
how you run a great business, how you build a great family, become a better parent, friend, all of those things matter. And so while you come for the business every now and again, you'll hear about some of the softer sides of life. Great. Thanks, Chris. To listen to the Fort Podcast, type in Fort Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I also want to thank our other three sponsors, Hood and Strong, Ravix Group, and Oberly Risk Strategies. And now to the episode. Let's, yeah, let's kick off a little bit with about Can Collective and what's the business and why HOA and why the model? What, what made it such a good fit for, for you both? Our business is the CAM Collective, and that is a network of association management companies, which basically means we help folks manage condo buildings, HOAs, cooperatives, not inside their units, but all the common property that you own together. We got into business in April of 2022 because Jalen and I found that two companies wanted to sell at the same time, but they were in two different states, in both Virginia and in Illinois. And so we happened to make that work. And today we're in four states, Illinois, D.C., Virginia, and Texas. What's, what's like the semi-related podcast, blog, newsletter, YouTube channel you would make for Cam Collective? Well, I can tell you, so the you said like a second ago, nothing related to HOAs, like not at all related to HOAs. That actually, we know, we know a woman who owns business, an HOA business in D.C., and that's her organizing principle for the blog is like, don't talk about HOAs because nobody actually wants to talk about your HOA. <laughs> so her, her newsletter is all, she's like, here's a racial justice forum you can go to. Here's the, like, the best rooftop bars in DC you can go to. And she's like, those are the ones people click on because no, nobody, we can write the same article about how you should really leave your water dripping when it's cold outside a thousand times and no one's going to click on that. They will click on the one about the rooftop bars. And it's, you know, it's like, it's a geography based, geography based. Uh, business, so it's, it's basically relevant. Yeah, if, if, if I, I if we if we had if we must if we had to do one, I think it would. I would inevitably get into the HOA business side of it. But let's say that it was just talking about actually managing communities. People would listen to that, but that closing question would be like, "Tell me one crazy story." And every manager has just a deep list of the wildest things they've seen. The wildest things they've seen. A lot of it's kind of macabre. But the stuff that, <laughs> but it's a lot of dead a bodies. Lot, a lot of dead body <laughs> stories. But it's it is just wild the things that you you encounter when you're sort of managing people's homes. So what what's one of those stories? Like anonymize one and and share that. Jalen, you got one. Yeah, there's there, there's like, there's a number of these. Yeah. I think that this one was in our our DC business. The one of the normal duties you have to do when you're managing the HOA is collect the assessments from each of the homeowners, right? So if you have a I think these were the condo building kind of looks like a townhouse building. So it's a single floor unit on the on the bottom and a two story unit on the top. And you know, normally this is this is boring, right? But you have a, you have a, a monthly or quarterly meeting and you review the list of people who are delinquent on their assessments. And you have to go and, and collect from them. And so there's this there's this one manager who's now the president of that business who was managing this building. They were kind of going through a turnaround. They were trying to clean up their collections. And there's this one unit owner who's just like on the collections list every month, like clockwork, which is not actually that uncommon. But so, you know, the steps are you send him a letter, send him a second letter, you like call the attorney, and the attorney sends him a threatening letter about filing a lien on their house. And then usually you don't get past that, but this guy still didn't respond. They called him, couldn't get an answer. So they go to court, they file a lien on the house, the association like tries to repossess, or does repossess the house. 
and they go inside to take it. They, you know, break the locks. And this, <laughs> this guy is just, I mean, the guy died like, like two years ago and has just been in the house since then. And so the, the, like, this was a, this was, this was early in our like HOA career, but April is what I'm talking about. So me. She's like, I don't know if you know what happens to a body if you leave it for two years. And I was like, you know, that has never been professionally relevant for me before, but I, cause I, so I don't know. I don't actually know. And she's like, well, let's just, it, it drips. And so she's like, this house is just a disaster because it's been two years. And which is kind of sad because nobody went to live with this guy. And so she's like, so I had to, I had to have a vendor for that. And I, I have my body guy and I called him and he came and cleaned things up and we sold the house. <laughs> that is a niche business. Yeah. That might, so, that might be it. Yeah, That's so it. it was, That's the one guys, all you searchers out there, look for that one. <laughs> you that, that is not a thing I thought I was going to have to think about in my job. I can to have, that. to have a body guy for illegal purpose. That's <laughs> yes, pretty to- legendary. Totally up and up, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty legendary. Yeah. Huh. I was I was thinking more like the owner the owner disputes are always really fun stories. So this was this was in uh, Chicago. This is a great story. This is one that we didn't we didn't get to experience it ourselves. But <laughs> so the dynamic here is you know condos will often have pipes that go between different units. They all basically share the same like water pipe or sewage pipe. And in this case, this sewage pipe was having a lot of issues and was backing up. And the way that it was showing was the person, the person in the unit. So there's, let's say there's second floor unit, first floor unit. First floor unit person was seeing sewage back up into their drain. So it's showing up in their sink and their toilets and, and terrible, terrible situation to be a part of. Not what you want. You really don't want to have that. And it was happening periodically. And this person, I guess, just had the opinion that it had to be the person right above. And they were the reason why this was happening. And it, there was no other reason for it. It had to be the owner above them. So this person basically, you know, gets a cup. One day it backs up into the sink really bad, the sewage, gets a cup, fills it, walks upstairs to the unit above, knocks on the door, and when the owner answers the door, face full of sewage, and just causes a lot of issues. So, yeah, turned into a board conversation for sure. What was the issue? Well, was the, the pipes need to be fixed. <laughs> that, that had nothing to do with the second floor unit owner had nothing to do with the problem that the first unit unit owner, the first floor unit yeah. owner was doing. If you, if you really want to get into the technics on that one, it's the there's a builder defect, which is a whole other category of like an issue that associations have with people who developed the building and this build this builder was dumb. So they ran the drain pipe down in the basement and around like three corners at right angles, which is terrible. Obviously that's gonna clog at some point. And so they they had this this is like a reliable problem in this building because every downgrade you had went around these corners. So it was it had nothing to do with the poor people upstairs. It was the building's fault. But you know, somebody's gotta get the pound of flesh. <laughs> You saw all these stories and was like, yeah, this is the place for me. This is where I'm going to build my That's career. what sold us. It yeah. was. It was. I just need to be entertained. Honestly, it is. I do. That. This is not really the answer, but I do think it's... I think this is like a fringe benefit of the space. And it's kind of entertaining. Like we manage like a couple hundred tiny little governments with their tiny little problems that everyone is extremely, very real mad at. You got to deal with it. And if you don't have a a lighthearted point of view on that. You can't work in this space because it will drive you insane. But everybody is very mad about something at all times. I think it's kind of fun. So yeah, why, why HOAs? Why were they interesting to you? And why build a cam collective around them? 
So there's an academic reason for it. I think we led a little bit with the personal. So on the personal side, I think that we, <laughs> we, we like this concept and we like people businesses. I think it just really matches with our personalities. And also at the end of the day, it, it's got something that's really important. These are small problems, but these are small problems in people's homes. So it's actually really important. So you're actually doing a very needed service for them. So there's also like a service element to it in my mind. You're actually, you actually making a difference in your local area, right? You multiply the fact that you could make someone very happy in a small way, multiply that by three, like 3,500 people in a subdivision, right? Like for example, you've done a great job of beautifying the front of the building. Like you've actually just made a tangible impact in people's lives at a pretty large scale, just because you did a good job of managing landscapers. But I think the, the academic reason is just, it's, it is a really great space. It's a space. If you think about the, the industry, we did a little bit of work in the beginning of this. There are just so many HOAs in the, in the nation. There are over 360,000 or more. It's an incredibly re recession resilient business industry, right? Uh, if you think about what managers are doing, we are taking care of all the needs of the community. And in return, we are receiving, you know, basically a fixed portion of money from a buyer that is getting paid by, you know, assessments, right? Associations are receiving assessments from their, their communities and assessments are about as sticky as taxes. And so it's a really great business. It's a great business model. I mean, you might want to explain what that is first. We do this every day. And I think that we also get phone calls from homeowners every day. And I was just talking to some of the folks who answer our phones in our, our Chicago business. And they're like, yeah, you know, one in five people don't know what their association is called or why they're calling us. They think that we are the association, which is not true. <laughs> so the, right, the, like the, do you live in, first of all, do you live in an association? And, and the, depending on where you live, it's either almost definitely yes if you're in Houston or almost definitely no if you're in Boston, right? But if you are, in theory, you're, you're one member of a corporate entity that is managing all the common property that you guys own together because you own one one hundredth of the pool and the entryway and the gatehouse and the roads, maybe, and the fences. If you're in a condo building, the hallways and the roof. And so you have to pay your kind of share to maintain that and manage it because somebody's got to do it. You all own it communally and you have a tragedy, the commons problem. So you elect a board who then has oversight responsibility over that common property. And one of those responsibilities is to essentially tax people to, to maintain it. And so you just, you've in a kind of weird way, created government again in a, in a very small way. And frankly, people just don't understand that. <laughs> but that assessment, because it's, you saw, if you buy property in that association, it's like legal, usually LLC, then uh, you're obligated from the, the deed that runs with the property to pay those assessments every month. And so literally next to taxes, it's, a, it's like the most certain cash flow a business can rely on because if you don't pay this, someone's going to take your house from you eventually. And so there's, there's no real collections problem. There's like a timing collections problem, but everybody will pay their assessments at some point, whether it's on time, late because you sent them a letter or because you made them sell the house to pay the assessments, they will pay those assessments. And that's like a really... I don't, we knew that theoretically going in, but that is that is a really nice sort of fail safe for our business. We know that our clients are our clients will always have the money to pay us sooner or later. 
So is there churn whatsoever or is it just a matter of like if someone wants out, they sell the house and someone else buys and then they're paying the assessments now? Like is is there any churn like in any real sense? Churn for, well, there's different levels. Are you talking about churn for the management company? Sure, yeah. So there is because ultimately your customer is a board of volunteers in the neighborhood, which is great from the service you're providing them because no one really wants to do all the work necessary to manage their community. And again, they're very important things you have to do. But at the same time, you can get stuck in office basically in community politics, right? And someone, one person can get on the board because they have a gripe and they're going to blame the management company for it. So the moment that they get on board, the first thing they do is change their management company. Yeah, that makes sense. What about for the HOA? Like the HOA itself has zero churn because there wouldn't be a property that leaves the HOA or anything like that. No, and then they can't. Right. So all the homes are part of that association. And so they all have the responsibility to communally fund the common interest areas. In theory, you could dissolve an association. The whole association could dissolve, but the the voting thresholds to do that are so high that in practice it doesn't happen. Like I, I'm not even Maybe it's happened. I, I actually have never heard of an example of that happening. Unless it's in the world that someone's trying to, like a, a building, right? Usually not like like sort of horizontal communities, but in buildings it happens when people deconvert and turn it back into like a single owner building. That's a whole other rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> so what are some keys you found to retention in maintaining HOA relationships? So when that, you know, if there's someone who has a gripe, they can't over, you know, send out the management company or change management company, or maybe you just find ways to make them less likely or, you know, less angry with the management company. What are some, what are some ways you've reduced churn? Well, let's start with this is that I think this is really, this is really interesting because the, you know, we've for a year and a half, we just spent all day, every day talking to owners of management companies, trying to find one that would sell us the business. And they're always, this is what's on their plate, right? As the owner of the company, they're dealing with either the new clients or the problem ones that are about to leave. So it's on their mind, right? And to them, there's always this risk of a homeowner staging a coup and getting on the board and firing them, which is true. But this whole, as a whole, the industry has 90 or 95% retention from a customer standpoint. And so, yes, there's a few of them a year that are at risk of leaving and you have to work on to, to make sure they stay. The reality is that you, it's, it's, if you got 100 clients, maybe five of those are even at risk in a year. Maybe 10 of them are at risk. And so the, for a lot of reasons, one in part because they're volunteers, they meet quarterly. This is, you know, this is nobody's full-time job in most cases from the homeowner standpoint. You just have extremely sticky by nature customers. But and the, I forget who said this to me. Somebody was like, look, today's homeowner is tomorrow's mad board member. So you've, you've kind of got two clients as a management company. You're, the board are your direct clients. That's who you're meeting with quarterly. That's who, you're, that's who you're directly corresponding with. You're acting as an agent for them. The homeowners can get, are easy to forget. right? You, you have to answer the phone when they call. But it's, I think there are a lot of management companies that kind of think of that as a burden and try and minimize the cost on, on that service front. And in reality, and this is true in a lot of customer service businesses, you just want someone to answer the phone. Right? Like if you're calling your manager company, whether it's for a legitimate purpose or not, and a lot of them are actually not because people don't understand the association dynamic, but you just want someone to answer the phone and either solve your problem or tell you where to go to solve your problem. And if you can do that, then that homeowner is not pissed off and that homeowner is not going to run for the board to eject you. And so if you just pay enough attention to making sure that you 
answer people's questions in a timely manner, then you like, have protected yourself a bit from the from that board queue. But the reality is that the, you're only ever going to get that down to a couple percentage points, right? Like people, it's government, right? So people are going to be mad about some decision the board made, and the, and you as the agent have no control over what decisions they make, right? You're advising them, but they are going to make the choices. And if somebody's mad about the pickleball courts, real thing, pickleball courts taking up a tennis court because they're tennis players, like there's nothing you can do about that. And if they throw you out with the bathwater, then then it is what it is. Right, and that's again, even in the five to ten that you're talking about, that's one or two. I think I think we feel I think you, I think it's natural you're going to have one or two percent churn, but that's that's just by virtue of those situations. And I think the rest of it is just people are okay with they're they're happy enough with their manager. And I think that's what you're 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 looking to beat that bar. The bar is really low for management companies. And the reality is that the ones that we have in the collective are doing something that's better than that. So that's why our, our industry retention, our, our retention is higher than industry. We're at around 95, 96% as opposed to the 90% we've seen with other entities. Does that also give you a, a good amount of pricing power? Or how does pricing power work in an HOA management industry dynamic? Yeah, I think it's interesting. They see the service that the, that the manager is providing to the community, and they understand the world that we're in today, where because the cost of wages are going up, you have to come to the conversation and say that there are costs. We have to basically raise revenue in order to meet that cost. Right? People are the single biggest cost in this business for us. And so I think that opens up the opportunity for us to go to a customer and say, Hey, look, CPI has grown at X percent in the last year, and we have to make sure that we're paying our people appropriately. That's why this person is able to give you the time to give you the service you need. And so we make that argument to be able to have that level of pricing power to at least grow as fast as CPI. Now, that would work a lot harder if we have one big customer. I think in this industry, you're, the average you know, association management company in the collective has 100 associations. And so each one of these just mathematically is 1% of revenue. So if that does not work with that one board, then it's not the end of the day. Yeah, that makes sense. You, you talked about having like, you know, cities like Houston might have a lot of HOAs and Boston might have none. Or I imagine those home ownership cultures are you know, radically different between the two areas. Has that led to some of your thinking around being very decentralized versus centralizing a lot of functions among your member companies? You know, I, I think it's less the geography, although that is a, a benefit of that. I think it's less the geography and more philosophy, frankly, which is our industry has a, a handful of long-term, objectively successful, like, large consolidators, right? And one of them has been doing it for 30 or 40 years. But most of them, or the, the two or three that I'm thinking of, will buy the company. They will take your accounting team and they'll say, these guys are redundant and they'll fire them and ship that work down to their shared service center somewhere in a low cost market. And they'll rebrand the company and they'll, they'll change all your standard processes, which is like a, that's the, on the flip side of this, you know, I think the the investor types, you know, the Orlando's on the phone would be like, that's the playbook. That's how you create value. (laughs) (laughs) And there are industries where that is true and where that impact is, is dramatic. In ours, though, the primary cost in our business, the 80, we just looked at this, 83% of our costs are our payroll. And so the unless you can make some dramatic difference using technology, not 
outsourcing in the number of communities that one of your managers can manage, you're going to have to just hire people as you grow, right? That's somewhat linear. And so you're, you're not getting enormous kind of standard classical business school economies of scale. And so what then matters, like I think what matters is the, if you're a, if you're a long-term acquisitive business like we intend to be, you need people to want to sell you the business, right? And they've got other options. And the other options are doing one thing. You basically just got to be a different option for those people. And what are they, what the people who have not already sold to the 40-year consolidator have not done it for a reason, right? Either they're too young and they don't want to sell yet, okay? Or they're worried about those accountants that have worked for them for 25 years, or they hate their like national competitors who they've been competing with. And the so what are they, how do you meet the needs of that person who's selling? I think one of the big ones is just let them continue. It's we wouldn't be thinking about buying a company if it weren't working somehow. Right. So the idea of showing up on day one and ripping all sorts of stuff out, just like never it just seems silly to me, right? Unless there's some like huge math on the other side that obviously makes it work, which I don't think is true in this industry. Just don't do that. Let them let the company stay what it is. People like the brand. It's grown enough for you to be interested in it. People like working there because that's why they stayed there for 20 years at a time. How about you just don't change that? Which is uh, I guess a radical idea, but I don't think should be. Right. And so the that's how we got to a decentralized model, which is like, how do you allow that to happen? Is you just let people keep somewhat local control and identity and brand and culture, and then figure out how you can then help them on top of that. And can you, the question we asked ourselves was, can you build a bigger business like that? And I think the answer is yes. So if you think of like the value proposition to your customer, if, you, if your customer is that owner, what other pieces of value did they? Did you find were maybe missing in the market among those other consolidators where they they couldn't offer a certain service? Like you've, we talked about earlier. There's a peer group. You know, the, these CEOs have been running these businesses for a long time, kind of on their own on an island. They now have a group of other HOA management CEOs can go talk to. Like, what are the other kind of pieces of value you've assembled through Cam Collective that are differentiated compared to other consolidators? Yeah, I think. It's interesting. You you touched on it in a very interesting way, but but what we do is we try to make sure that we're bringing the large company resources that any national player would have and bring it to their business as their business stands. I think the reason why these conversations from the other buyers, the consolidators, might be a little bit tough for sellers is usually what they're doing is they're coming in there and saying without saying, but like we are going to change the way you do business in a very meaningful way. And I think what we want to do is come in with additive resources, meet them where they are, and find ways to help them grow in their own unique way. So maybe that makes a little bit our job a little bit harder because the way that we look at every individual member company is in the ways that they each need to grow. But I think the benefit is to the seller, well, okay, it sounds like you want to actually invest and train in the people who are here. You're not trying to fly in people who are going to then replace the folks who are in the company, right? Because what I'm at, what matters most to me, and I think what I love about this industry in general, is that like people at work there matter the most, right? More so than your customers, because it's dynamic. Right? You have 100 customers, but you only have 15 managers. And so you care about every one of those managers a lot more than you care about one of those 100 customers. And so the the idea of, of coming in and saying that we're going to be providing resources and we're going to, make, we're going to elevate everyone there, I think is actually really resonant for them. And I think from a business perspective, like people want to see their business grow 
And when we, when you can basically tell them that we're going to help them because we have a person who's going to dial and talk to every other prospective board member in your area and try to generate leads for you, that's going to obviously be a really like, it's going to be encouraging feeling, right? This is going to make people's jobs easier. And you go in there and we think that we can use some modern tools to make someone who works in AP's job so much easier. You can remove hours in a week because you can go in there and make some, basically created some tools that we get to bring into every one of our member companies that make people's lives so much easier. And I think that that's the kind of stuff that clicks in their mind because you're not coming in and using, you know, a lot of the things that I used to write in Dex and you know in private equity, I would, I would walk <laughs> in and I would say a lot of really great things about how their industry is resilient and how they were going to go and disrupt the space and they're going to make a big difference. And we were going to get all of those great words that go into an IC deck that don't necessarily make any, like aren't really tangible to the seller. I think we just leave them where they are. We talk about what we can actually do very tangibly and help like help them. I think it's, we talk all the time about sellers like kind of wish list, right? And they, everybody's got a, a list of things that they that they wish they had time to do, right? They're like, oh yeah, well, I would I would start doing sales if I just I just don't have time because I got all these clients. You know, I wish we could upgrade the technology. I wish we could I wish we could hire somebody to work on whatever it is, right? And the we almost always can tick some of those things off their list, either because we've already thought about it because it's a similar problem that other companies in the collective have already had. We've developed a tool that's very easy to turn on. Or it's just we've got extra manpower and attention and energy to, to do some of those things. And so the, I think it's a mistake to think that people who are selling the business are, are doing it because they're you know kind of hit a dead end and are, are like, don't have any aspirations for it anymore. That we found over and over again that it's more likely that at least the people we end up working with, because it's a good match, are still excited about growing the business. And the other stuff that kind of gets in the way has taken up too much mindshare and kind of made them tired. And so if you can take some of that away, then they're really excited to work on the stuff they've always wanted to do and help grow the business still, which is how they got to the size they are now, right? Over 20 years. It's because they were excited about growing the business. And so it's actually pretty... It's, it's rewarding personally to be able to make that happen for people is to be able to say like, cool, we're going to work on taking the stuff off your plate so you can do what you actually want to do. And I think it's... Yeah, you, know, you have to ask them if, if we're delivering on this promise, but I think, I think they'd tell you that they're, they're kind of enjoying yeah. it. Yeah. And the proof there is interesting where the conversations in the beginning for three of the four member companies, which we should probably talk a bit about like where we are today, but we can, we can get there. But the, of the three and the, the first three members in the collective... All three of them originally started the conversation off as I plan on leaving in a very short period of time. And at the end of it, we have two who have basically committed to staying perpetually and they've actually rolled equity into the collective. So I think one of the other things that resonates with sellers is our flexibility, right? Our ability to go through and make sure that this is the right decision for them. I think we treat this decision not as like a point in a huge MA list just to kind of get through. But like we're trying to treat, we're trying to take care of this as a this, this is a big decision. This is a very big decision for them, and we similarly believe it's a big decision for us. And so we make sure that we show that level of care. Yeah, how do you keep focused on that level of care, knowing that you know you might be in the middle, you might do fifty of these transactions over the course of a career, or maybe even more, fifty, hundred, whatever the number is, but this is probably the only transaction for them. It's the only time they're going to go through this. How do you? How do you kind of right size that focus to make sure that 
you can you convey that importance to them while knowing that this is not going to be the last time you do this. Yeah, there's two points in there. One is I don't think we'll ever be the spot that's trying to do an acquisition a month. That's just not what we believe we need to do, and it's not necessarily what we hope to do. And I think I think that'll certainly help make it easier to have sort of meaningful conversations with people. You know, I think that a lot of private equities like pitch is we'll pay you more and we'll close the deal in 30 days. I think that's really compelling for a lot of people who are looking to sell. I think what we do is sure. I mean, we, we could probably close fast if we have to, and we will certainly do that once we get to the point and this deal is exactly the deal you want. But because of this decision, I think we're going to meet them where they are. We're going to talk to them for as long as they want to talk and make sure we get to the decision that makes the most sense. Even if it takes six months to a year to write, like, get the right deal with them. So I think just by virtue of not coming in and proposing a you know, false urgency or a fake timeline, I think we are already making sure that they see that we're, we're committed to doing something right by that. Yeah, I also like to focus on growing their business versus talking about all the different cost savings. Or I don't know if you would talk about that and all the previous decks you used to make, but the uh, that focus on here's the you know ambition we have. Here's some ways that we've seen companies grow, like yours, new revenue lines. How does that? It sounds like that resonates with the right owner that you've talked with. What are some revenue lines and growth opportunities you most often see with HOA management businesses? I think it's pretty simple to describe. The way you would write it in an IC deck is there are a number of different ancillary services you can provide to maximize your revenue growth. And I think what you're basically saying is, let's find someone who's going to focus explicitly on capital projects. We're going to hire this person who maybe was a structural engineer before, or they did masonry projects before. They're going to come in and what they're going to do is they're going to take a necessary task that managers deal with every day. And they're going to handle all and focus on that. And in return, what we're going to do is for those capital projects, we're going to charge a percentage of the project, which is a market ask, but it's no longer a burden on your manager's time. It's now someone who's dedicated and focused on doing that. So they almost have like a mini business unit. And so like that's an example of something you can describe to a seller that gets them really excited because they've had that. They maybe even had it in their wish list, right? But the reality is that we, we have an idea of how we can help them do that. And we have some examples because different members of the collective have done that. And so that's just like one way. I think this business, the people business, is a service business. So really it's saying, let's find the dedicated talent to help you do this next step and maybe provide that additional service to benefit your community. And that's ultimately what that's basically what it is, whatever the service may be. I think about this as what percentage of an association spend do they spend with us? Right? And the answer from most management companies is 5 or 10% because they're paying that management fee and some of the homeowners are maybe paying fees when they sell a house or ask for documents or something. But you're really only taking 5 You're only getting 5 or 10% of the spend of your clients. So what are they spending the other 90% of that money on? They're spending it on insurance. They're spending it on, on regular janitorial or landscaping or maintenance work. They're doing special projects. They're doing, there's all the business of the association. right? And so if you think about what are the... That's your scope. Right. And there's maybe even a little, there's an extra next level scope, which is then what all the homeowners spend on. That's kind of like a level 201 thing. But just in 101, what are the associations already spending on? And you know that answer precisely because you manage all of their budgets. <laughs> so I can tell you right now exactly what they spend on every one of those services because we wrote the budget. 
then you start saying, okay, well, they're, you know, this association spending $20,000 a year on a handyman to change out the light bulbs or to paint the walls or to power wash the garage. Could we both do that for them at cost or maybe even below cost of what they're paying some other vendor to do it? Do it faster because we control the... We have the guy on staff who knows their association already and is, is in the same building, the same outlook system with their manager. Could you then just have that person overnight change the light bulb? So they never even see a, a like out light bulb. There's no vendor to call. There's no wait list to be on because there's there are clients already, right? That's one of them. We've seen we've seen some companies do that really successfully, and a lot of this is frequently on people's wish list. Is like, I wish I could just do that in house, but it's a whole project. You don't have time to think about how to do it. So that, that's one of them. There's a lot of insurance spend. If you're doing it right, you're bidding out to different carriers frequently. We do that every year, but every other, every three years. You're usually going to a broker to do that. That broker is basically just taking a tax on you because they know you're gonna ha- you have to get this insurance. In a lot of states, it's required for the for the association to have it. So this this broker is getting a thirty percent commission on every one of those policies they pay. There's no reason we couldn't also offer that service as a manager company. And there's you know there's five or six examples of those things that are getting you to set of five percent of an association spend to twenty, with without even growing customers. Right, you're just selling additional services to them. And then we can we can we can save the homeowner selling to homeowners is a whole you do a separate podcast on that one. Right. There's a whole two-sided marketplace business. Wonderful, wonderful. Jalen, you talked about being an automation zealot. Can you walk through maybe a few examples of some no-code tools or automated tools that you've developed that work really well? Yeah, how long do you have? You got like two or three hours. <laughs> I'm, I can I'll, I'll tell you about my my thoughts here. This is another one of those, this is one of those things that I think is not even on the wish list. Right, people. People don't. At least the sellers we've worked with so far don't come to us and say, "You know, I wish I had time to work on some some low code tools to increase the efficiency of my team." Right? They just don't think that. And I don't really know why. I think in a lot of their cases, they've never even, they don't even realize that it's possible. And so it, it's a pretty fun, again, like really gratifying thing for for us as you know trying to build this business. Is it sort of magic? You can say to somebody like, "Hey, you know, you can actually this thing that used to take your team." 100 hours a month, we could probably do in like 30 minutes if we wrote the, if we spent a week or two writing the script to do it. Or even not writing the script, doing it in, in a low-code way, right? So here's a real example. At almost every one of our member companies, and I would, I would wager at essentially every manager company in the country, your clients will at some point ask you to buy something for them and they'll reimburse you, right? So if you can do that with an invoice, it's better. It's easier. That's how you pay most things. But... Say you got to go to Home Depot for something. There's like a million reasons why you might not be able to get an invoice. And they'll say, cool, can you just put it on your credit card management company? And then you'll just bill us back for it. And what that turns into is... Okay, well, so the first time somebody asked somebody that 20 years ago, they're like, okay, sure. And it was really easy because you just saw that expense on the credit card and you and you, say, you charge their account. You control the bank account. So it's easy to reimburse yourself. Fast forward 20 years, and now what you get every you waiting in the mail every month for an Amex statement that has you know, 200 charges on it. You don't know which clients they're for. You don't know. You don't know. Hopefully, you can figure out the vendor based on that statement, and it, it and it takes you 60 days to figure out what all those are. And then by that time, you're two months late on doing that for the next two months. And so, in every we've seen this problem over and over again, and it's just it's painful. It's one of those things when you you show up and you ask somebody like, "What steals time from you?" And every time they say, this thing is awful. I just want this to go away. And so we basically figured out how 
through a combination of different kind of charge guard technology. We use Ramp, which I'm I'm like a here's a free a free plug for Ramp. Ramp is an awesome product. The a combination of Ramp and things like Zapier, where you like very easily take the the data download from Ramp, gets you all of your transactions, set that so that it's already coded to which association it is. Have some combination of Google Sheets or Excel or Zapier turn that into invoices for all those charges by association. Upload that to your essentially ERP. And now, in what used to take you sixty days, you can basically click a button and it's done. Assuming that you've like done a little bit of the pre work, and that is just it. Like it's magic to people, and it's. And I, I was an engineer in college, and this stuff gets me excited. So I, I like actually tinkering with that kind of. Like, I get to I get to pretend like I know how to code, which I I like I know enough to be dangerous. And it saves people just just hours. I, we've only like really scratched the the surface of that. I I tell Orlando that I refuse to build custom software because I think that sends you off the like deep end of spending a fortune trying to do something. But there's all this stuff you can do with like a login and an hour googling that can the like time returns are are wild. And people just haven't even thought about it. That gets me excited. Yeah, there's definitely a lot there. One other you talked about talent a little bit too. And decentralization. I think this is a there's like an interesting discussion, like overlap between the two, where you've talked about at the holding company level, you don't necessarily want a large team or a large staff that you're managing. You want to keep talent as close to the customer as possible. Can you dive into that philosophy just a little bit more? I just went on a rant. I'll go on another rant. I'll rant all day. Yeah, no, I mean, go for it. I, mean, I think I think in the the philosophy of keeping the center lean, I think this is. You are far more zealot on this than I, than, I, than I would say I am, for sure. I do think that it's important that the talent, that we're not creating farm talent to bring to the collective, right? I think early on, we got some great advice that when you create a new role, especially in a center, right, that role exists for, like, forever. And so if you keep on making new roles at the center, then you just continue to create bloat. And I think we just want to avoid that. The number I'm thinking in my like not the number the, the concept I'm thinking in my mind is just like you want, you actually want the center to be scalable you want to get leverage off of the services that we're providing off of the center from like a numbers perspective and the way you do that is by keeping the center meaningfully within like a, a, set, a set you know dollar amount that you can manage every year. Yeah, I mean, there really wasn't much more thought to it than that, right? And there's both the, like, the financial aspect, like the benefit to the collective is that we're actually getting leveraged off the center and we're not growing the center as fast as we're growing the member companies. But I think just philosophically, I think that the talent is best served at the member companies. And the way that they grow within themselves is by collaborating, right? If you have the, the, the flip side of having, and maybe this is like the, the, if you have a network of independently managed manager companies, is there's no real reason for them to work with each other unless you foster collaboration. And we do that, right? We intentionally make sure that people are meeting with each other at least once a month through what we call collective conversations. We have an annual planning session where everyone comes together. They open up all of their books and they have to talk about what they're actually facing, right? As opposed to when they go to like industry conferences or they meet as part of like trade co-ops where they kind of all just represent the best versions of themselves, right? It's like the social media effect. So I think that just fostering that collaboration, I think, is one of the best parts about that network. And I think you make that a necessity when the, the, the center is too thin to be able to do all the services for you. Yeah, I mean, I think hopefully somewhere there's a, there's a business school professor and strategy who's smiling on us. I, I, this, it's like all sort of the same choice. 
which is why does somebody who built a business for 20 years want to sell it to you instead of somebody else? Because you're gonna like maintain the identity of that place and keep it at the like smaller scale and practices and identity that, that it is. The other side of that is there's clearly a demand for that from customers, right? And that's aligned with the same set of choices, which is every customer also had the choice to either hire a local management company who's down the street or one whose headquarters is across the country and is a big established corporation. And people can make different choices on that, right? Same reason people like you know choose to work in a giant company or a small one. It's true of the employee side too. And so there's a, a dollars and cents thing, which is the less you spend in the corporate overhead at the center just to make yourself feel like you're doing stuff. Is better for the bottom line. Sure, there's there's that math. The other one is like you know it's probably better if your accountant sits next to the person who does the management for your clients and they can walk around the corner and be like, hey, what was the? There's something wrong with this, this set of financials. Can you fix that? And and it's done in 30 seconds. And there's no call to a service center and a two day SLA. And there's you, know, you just like fixed all of that. And so there's a lot of clients we sell against the big companies on this stuff. Right, where instead of you having to call somebody who's uh, in a random ring group in a city that's like a thousand miles away, you call somebody who you pro- like you probably talked to before, or who if if you haven't talked to them before, they know your manager, and if they don't understand your question, they can like walk down the hall and ask. And if you if you can make the dollars and cents thing work, and also provide that service, then people will choose you for that reason, right? Because a lot of times it happens all the time. We get clients. That are burned by those big ones and they hate that experience. And so they look for without us even, we don't have to sell it. They come to us saying we're looking for a local manager company. And and we're like, hello, here we are. And so I think you that is the it's all the same set of choices, which is like keep that local identity. And you can still grow, but you keep the local identity and people, both your your customers will come to you, your employees will choose, will opt into that. And then the future members of the collective will opt in to be able to keep providing that. So that decision to stay local and stay within the region of and keep that branding, you mentioned it kind of affects a lot of different areas. What other areas does that decision kind of leak into? Yeah, I think it goes back to manager like happiness, right? Just employee happiness. The numbers benefit is manager and employee retention is lower. But I think from from just like the day of life perspective is you, know, you feel like you're part of a family or part of a small team. And that small team is about the size of the office that you're in, as opposed to feeling like you're just a number in a big machine. And so I think that leads to people feeling more content or happier with their jobs. And so just that satisfaction helps. And people stay, who stay in their jobs longer tend to just get better at it. And so then you end up having just really good people who do really good work in your company. And I think that's ultimately what we want to keep. I think another thing that's on the flip side for that is by virtue of knowing that your that the business you work for operates independently, but is part of a network of other companies, is you get the benefit of knowing that if you ever wanted to move or go somewhere else, you could go and work within the same network. And at the very least, you are tangentially connected to the organization that you grew in. Another thing to consider is if somebody decided to hit the sort of... Usually in a small business, you hit a peak where you can't grow anymore. You hit a ceiling and there's not much more you can really do, right? And so knowing that you can leave one member company and join another in a leadership position could be really more exciting for you. Or maybe you're really entrepreneurial and you want to go out there and start your own management company in a different place because you're moving somewhere else. Like, Let us actually help you make that happen. And so there's just a lot of different ways where by virtue of our relationship and the network existing, 
you can create job satisfaction for someone, right? So they both get the benefit of feeling they're still at home, nothing's changed, but then they also get the benefit of the potential upside of knowing that they can grow. And so I think that leads to employee retention, which leads to customer retention, which leads to profits, which is the, <laughs> which I think is the business school way of describing what Jim would tell us, right? Is his seven word business plan. And so it's associates first, which Jim really loves employees first. So I'll say both and you guys can edit out which one you want to use. Associates first, customer second, bottom line third, employees first, customer second, bottom line third. I think we'll just okay. leave both of them in. Yeah, there you go. You can leave the whole thing. I just figured. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, we're not that smart. Right? We made this choice. And so we've duplicated, we're trying to duplicate this experience for other people. Right? Is we worked in big companies. We saw the flaws of that. Didn't love it that much. Wanted to work in a business that was human scale. You actually knew people, and there was a small office that was, you know, a real actual community, and not. I guess I won't pick a. I won't pick an actual company to to complain about. But like, if you, nobody cares about your like Fortune 100 company values in the wall. Like there, there is literally no way to actually define a set of values that describes 100,000 people. Once you just can't, it, unless it's a country, and even then, it's it, there's it's fractious. There isn't a way to do that, right? You can actually do that when you're picking 50 people in one office in one place. You can select in and out, and people will also do it themselves. Select in and out of whether that culture works for them, right? Like our NRP, you've met Jim at, in DC. Like that is a sometimes literally like family first office. You got multiple generations of people in the same family that work there. You got kids in the office, and their dogs, and they're eating. They're like they all hang out on the weekends together, and they're having company potlucks, and they're going to each other's houses, and they're the like that is a bad what that culture is. And if you love it, you will stay there. If you don't. That's okay too, right? You could do that when there's 50 people. You can't do that when there's 100,000. And the I think that's the experience that Orlando and I both had at larger firms. And we opted out of that, opted into a smaller business world. And so the, the question for us is always, how do we like live in a, a like yes and world where there's benefits clearly to being bigger? How do we bring those down to a small business? The answer is you just... If you bring them together, you can share the cost of stuff. And now all of a sudden, you have both... People you actually know in the office at a place you like to go work, and the like, financial scale to hire a salesperson or to do better web design or to invest in automation, whatever it is, you have the skill to build those things. And so that's the that's the needle we're trying to thread. So, like thinking through the people side more, you both decided to do this as partners. Can you talk about that decision and the kind of pros cons and how you thought through being a, doing this as a partnership versus kind of each on your own to some degree? Huge mistake. Uh, <laughs> that's all you say. Biggest mistake of his life. Uh, <laughs> I, I think the way I thought about this was. I had an interest in investing in small businesses. That was that was where that kind of this, the original the, the originating thought came from. I was an investor. Thought that this would be an interesting space to do that. Listened to a bunch of great podcasts for years going to, going into business school. That kind of led me to believe that this would be a really great place to spend my investing career. And so I always thought that if I were to do this, it would have to be predicated on some level of MA, and I'd be able to do a little bit more work there. But then that by virtue of doing that, I just always imagined that I have a partner. And so I think better with a partner. I think that it's just more conversational. And I think what I wanted out of a partnership was like just to be able to have the like Friday afternoon, like, 
wow, well, that happened. <laughs> you know, just <laughs> the eyebrow raising moments, right? And just to be able to like, there's only one other person in the world that's gone through exactly what I'm going through right now. And I think that's a pretty powerful experience. So, oh. yeah. I, by the way, have not said Jalen the entire time because he's replacing it. <laughs> it could be anyone, just somebody else in that scene. I'm just saying that having a partner is important. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, mine, I just, I am like a crippling extrovert, right? Like, I could not do this whole thing by myself, right? You go sh- shut yourself in an office and think big thoughts about the business you're building. And during the search phase, you just, you know, make 100 phone calls a day, whatever it is, and you just do that by yourself. I just couldn't do it, right? There's a, one of our professors is like, if you want a partner, get a dog, which, yes, the math is better. If you, if you could do all the same things by yourself, then sure. But I would hate it. And that is about as sophisticated as my choice on this was, is I'm just going to enjoy it. The whole point of doing this is to enjoy it while also having a career, right? And so the, like, I, I'm not going to make a, a like paper optimization choice to not have a partner because it improves my share of the equity ownership. Or even like make that counter argument, which people make, which is like, well, you know, if you have a partner, you actually increase your average rate of return. Like, maybe. Fine. I just... I. I'm a data guy. You can make the data say whatever you want to on, on those fronts. Like the question is like, are you going to like it better or not? In the next 20 years, you're going to do this thing. If you have a partner to go complain to when somebody calls you and pisses you off or not. And there are people who want to be lone hunters and that's great for them. I'm not one of them. And so the, I had to, I had to figure out for a while. I was thinking about doing it alone because I didn't, I hadn't found my Orlando yet. And I'm very grateful. Yeah, I made sure not to you, talk when you said that, so that way you could replace that later, right? So that you could change that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that, that's I don't. It's another place where I think it's like people overthink it. Pick what works for you. Yeah. I like the thinking of how do you design a a career that you would also enjoy that would be fun for you and fulfilling and not just doesn't just look good on paper. Were there any? exercises or things that you did to answer questions for to yourself around what would I enjoy based on my previous experiences and what I know about my personality and what others know about me? How do you kind of arrive at whatever it is you feel like you'd be most fulfilled doing? I would like to tell you that we did that thoughtfully. <laughs> I think that I think there's two ways to arrive at the same endpoint, which one of them is like, well, you know, we defined the objectives and one of them was fit with our personality and what we enjoy and therefore we narrowed it down to these three industries. The other one is you poke around at a bunch of stuff. Right, exactly. And like, look, I love a good PowerPoint. The other one is, and we did make some some intense PowerPoints. Like they they exist, right? If you want us to tell you about our model for industry selection, we can show you the slide. But the the other version of that is you poke around at a bunch of stuff. And some of them kind of resonate and you end up spending time there because you like it. And I think that in despite our best efforts at pretty slide making, that's kind of how where we ended up, right? Which is we we probably talked to a hundred management company owners because we did it for two weeks with our team of interns in, our, in what we thought was gonna be a rotation. And then six weeks later, we came back to it because we were like, Yeah, I didn't really love the last three, they were fine, but I, I really I'm still kind of I'm spending my like nights and showers thinking about the HOA one. So then you go back to it for two more weeks and you like the answers you get. And then for us, with the, the like summer and fall of 2020, I guess. And so you get, to, you get to the end of that year and you're like, you know, I think we've done enough like poking around. I, I think we like this one. The math works. 
we can make it happen. You got to get out of your like analysis paralysis and just do it. And that's kind of where we ended up. I think for me, part of that reason was this business is a, a kind of funny jumble of of different careers where it's one part it's one part uh, like property manager, right? You're actually managing a physical property, which is nice because it actually exists. I like that. I wanted to be an architect for a long time. Part of it is being an architect. Part of it is being an engineer. Part of it is being a lawyer. Like the number of of you're dealing with these bylaws, the association that are in theory written by lawyers, but are being interpreted by totally people, right? So there's a lawyer part of it there. There's a politician part. These are like miniature governments. There's insurance in there. I mean, you just end up being this kind of funky jack of all trades. One part real estate, part law, politics. I liked it. So it's. Uh, I would like to tell you that, that was analytical. I think it was just. I think we backed into it. Yeah. Are we talking about partner selection or are we talking about industry selection? <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a little bit of both. I'd, I'd say go for whatever feels right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think that I, I'm prone to analysis paralysis, right? And so I had to make sort of time guards to make a decision on partnership. And so what prompted this really was that I had this opportunity to take a role that would have not led me to be in Chicago. But instead, I took the one in Chicago, but it was like I had to make a decision. And so then I had to quickly decide who I would want to do this with. And so quickly dwindling down to the things that matter the most to me, right? In terms of like chemistry, like easy to get along with, has degree of interests that are just different than mine, right? Recognizing some of the things about myself that I certainly like about myself, but maybe doesn't lend well to being like, the CEO of a large company. <laughs> just trying to find some sort of like opposites in that way. You know, there were some people that fit that bill. Jalen fit most of it. And so I went to Jalen. Uh, it's the four nicest things ever said about me. Yeah. I'm glad we got that on, on recording. Jay, I, went, I, went to, I went to Jalen and I said, hey, I've got a number of days before I have to make this decision. And so... To be clear, it was like two. No, 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 no. It's like the, the number of days wasn't like 100. It was two days. It was. I went to him on like a Thursday or a Friday. And I was like, I could probably push this out a week, but I'm going to respond to him on Monday. So make a decision. <laughs> he gave me the exploding uh, friendship. Yeah. Offer, you know? I think one of the things that like kind of helped, because I think Jalen, you know, Jalen had to go through his thought process. I actually don't know what happened that weekend. <laughs> and I would love to hear like the story of what happened that weekend. But I think part of it was that a good friend in common is his girlfriend. And I think that like he basically asked her if I was a good person. <laughs> so I did do that. That's right. So, so and she was like, I don't I've got serious doubts, but I guess it's your only option. <laughs> <laughs> no, we were it's funny, we were house hunting that weekend. We were in Chicago looking for an apartment for her. And I did, I had previously asked her, I was like, oh, you know, Orlando popped the partnership question the other day in class. Like, what do I, I don't know. What do you think? And she had nothing but good things to say, Orlando. And then we were, we were like house hunting in Chicago that weekend. And I remember like getting, we're getting into an Uber to go to a different apartment building. And I was just like, I guess like, I got to stop. I got to just decide. I guess, I guess we're doing it. And so I looked at Beth and I'm like, oh, I guess I'm going to say yes. Here we go. <laughs> And that's honestly, we had that same. I think you just you just reached a point to Orlando's point where you've you you are fully analysis paralyzed, right? And you're like, okay, it's like there there's literally no more analysis I can do on this thing. There's no more thoughts I can have. I'm going to have to make a choice. 
the partnership moment for that was in that Uber on the way to the apartment building. The industry thing on that was us sitting at, at my like dining room table in like November 2020 and be like, we could, we could go look for other things or we can do the one in front of us. So you, we're sitting there having a bourbon and we're, we just go, Guess we're doing it. And you know, I think that happens a lot in making decisions. <laughs> like, like we get to the, we, you have to just get the, the necessary amount of information you need to make and then go from there, which is the opposite of my entire career. And so that has actually been an interesting learning experience for myself, which is like, what are the few things that I can calculate right now to get to making the best decision and then just be like, this is good enough versus trying to get the perfect answer. Has it felt like that's the threshold of information you need to make a decision is actually a lot less than you thought before. Has that been the realization you've had? It sounds like it's pretty close to that. I don't know. I think you still desire high quality information. It's just the analysis you're running to get to the, like, the decision. I think maybe over time we'll develop a gut sense. I think that like you can take the same amount of information and cut it a million different ways. When really you only have to cut it one way or two ways. I think it's what I was trying to get to. There's that. I, I think there is also a threshold difference, which is less that you have to make you have to like make a lower quality decision or think less about it, and more that the amount of data you have as an input is just limited, and it's going to be limited. You will not fix that, right? I was a consultant. Every single data point you want, if you're working for Miller Coors, purely hypothetical. And it exists, right? You can go in that ERP, you can call somebody on some on some team somewhere, they can produce the spreadsheet for you, it'll take a couple of weeks, and you can you can like do that now so it's possible. You pretty quickly hit a point where you and we do this in diligence, we're thinking about a new member company, right? You ask them, so, okay, so what happened? This is Orlando. This is the classic Orlando. Well, what happened with your employee churn in 2016? And they're like, I don't know, I switched payroll systems in 2018. I don't have the data. It literally doesn't exist. <laughs> There is no way you are going to answer that question. So you just got to move on. I think it's like kind of, it's kind of refreshing, right? You can't, it it puts a, for two people that are, I think, prone to analysis, it puts some guardrails around it because you just, you end up in farce pretty quickly. And so you got to just make a choice with what limited information you have. Yeah, I can see that. I was thinking of it in terms of like, you still strive to want the information you need to make the decision. (laughs) But but if you can't get it, you can't get it. You just got to move on. I mean, also the other dynamic is it's like you're maybe especially in our model where we are partnering with the existing small business founders and CEOs and employees instead of kind of replacing them with ourselves or somebody else. The we're constantly negotiating that, right? The level of analysis and thought that we want to go into a decision is almost always longer and slower than they want. And so that's also a good balancing act where we're saying, okay, well, can we think about, can we project the year if we make this choice? And then if not, and then also in these scenarios. And they're like, I would have made this choice three days ago. Like, what are you doing? And so you kind of have that negotiation enough times and you get to a spot in the middle where you've done enough analysis that it's, a, it's probably a good choice and they've given you the gut and, and you can meet in the middle on some of those things. Speaking of information and making decisions, what are some strongly held beliefs that you've switched your mind on over the years? I've been sitting on this one. I don't, I don't, I I think, you know, I grew up in a suburban part of Florida with, you know, in a religious household. And I think that if I look at the step function differences in my life, I've had a chance to see, I've, I've had the opportunity to have like very different mentalities about very important things, right? In life. I think the one that is immediate and comes to mind right now is, 
I would have told you a long time ago that the king of pop came and went. But today, I'm here to tell you that Harry Styles is absolutely one of... We will look back and say that this man is doing something different, and we were going to look back and, and appreciate him as maybe not the king, but one of the potential kings of pop. Just a, a, you got a lot of terrible takes for Lando. That one is that one is ice cold. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Styles. Okay. I, I, I hope uh, that we catch this reaction when we look back and we're like, wow, Orlando really cold. Yeah, roll roll the tape. I don't think that's how it's gonna go. We will roll this tape I in think, 20 years. I think maybe, maybe it's just the idea that there that there is a generation of musicians out there that are doing really great things. And I think that there's potential for someone out there too unseat the previous king of pop that everyone has in their mind when they think of that. Okay, you've you've walked back your claim from Harry Styles as the king of pop to there is a future king of pop. I'm going to stand on that one. I'm going to stand on that one, but I think that we can, I will open it up so that that way you can stop yelling at me. (laughs) This is how we make decisions, you know? Orlando says a thing and then I yell at him. I'll I'll go out of the bounds of a concept. He'll argue, we'll get in the middle and it works. <laughs> uh, well, now mine's going to be boring. I didn't realize we were going with hot pop culture takes. My answer to that is uh, I worked at McDonald's for a little bit in, like, in between my consulting life and my, my like, business school and search life. And on the, like, we, we helped them launch Uber Eats, like delivery with Uber Eats, which is pretty cool. We built a billion dollar business in a year. It was awesome, but it was in this like very big organization. And I remember thinking, it was pretty cool because like our seats for the strategy team were like right outside the CEO's office. So we got to hear a bunch of like pretty cool stuff that was going on for this hundred billion dollar company. And I the weird dynamic in McDonald's, they call it the three-legged stool, but you have everything you do, you have to run through the franchisees because they're they're co-owners, there's like antitrust law you gotta deal with. You can't even really set your prices because you can you can give them suggested prices, but they own the franchise business. And so as corporate, you're constantly like negotiating with them and trying to get them to do stuff. And as like the engineer brain of younger Jalen was like, that's so inefficient. Just tell them the optimized price and then they, they should sell it for. Why are you asking? So I, I remember thinking at the time, I would never run a business like this. It's so silly. It's inefficient. Why would you do that? And here we are, you know, fast forward five or six years and the entire ethos of our business about being decentralized and, and putting decision-making closer to the customer and, and it being collaborative instead of top-down. So then that's a, that, that one is a total reversal. I think current Jalen is right and, and previous Jalen was a little too, little too tied to the optimization math. So is that your best business then? McDonald's? My, my best business answer is like objectively not an answer to your question. <laughs> but the McDonald's is a pretty great business. My best business answer is less about like a, a fascinating like, academic business model and more just like experience, right? So the probably I think probably the reason that I even like care about small businesses now is my my uncle ran a window manufacturing company when I was a kid, and it had been like in his family for two generations. He it, like gave him the freedom to like have a boat and go on vacation when he wanted to. He brought his dog to the office. His like family was part of the company. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. And so that is that when you said best business, that's what I thought of. And then I couldn't think of a fun business model one. So I'm like, you know, I think the answer is, I, I think the, 
business gets kind of a bad like social rap, I think, in the modern zeitgeist. And it's like pretty powerful to be able to like, create that opportunity of people. And that's frankly what I want is is enough business to enough business to make you comfortable and and like a, a productive part of your life and not like a you know corporate share buyback optimization scheme. Yeah. I actually kind of started that. I started the thought process of best business that way as well. I was thinking about businesses that I think make a meaningful difference that people actually remember and think about for a long time. And they've set up sustainably for that reason. I'm from Florida. You know where I'm going with this, Jalen. Publix is absolutely one of the best businesses for many reasons. I think what they do every day, it's a supermarket, right? It's Every one of those publixes is located in like their local area. It's a fix, like it's a fixture. People go there. People talk about going to it. It's a big deal. And service makes a big difference because people can go to any grocery store around the area, but they actually care about the experience they're having there. And I've had a consistently great one every time my entire life. I think growing up with that being there and then like sort of publix is always growing in that area. It's been a big deal. Like I, I think now they're in other states, but. They were firmly in like Georgia and Florida growing up. And then I think if you look at it from the business side, it's a pretty profitable supermarket, which is hard to say because grocery stores run pretty small margins. And it's the, like the nation's largest employee owned business. And I think that's really fascinating. And so I think about potential futures for the collective and I would love for this to eventually be an employee owned business. Big statement at the end with uh, employee owned. It's a big switch. Do you have any sort of employee ownership process now or any plans for it? That's a good question. So, and this might, <laughs> we don't have it today. I think this is one of those things where there are a bunch of different ways you could approach an exit. And I think that a world where we were able to create ownership for employees would be a really great thing. Like something that sort of lives beyond us, right? Going back to publics. Right. It's not it the, the, the person who found his name is George Jenkins. It's not called Jenkins Mart. And so it's called Publix. It's not tied to him in any way. And it lives far beyond him. I think just by virtue of it being employee owned. I think it just shows in the service that you're getting when you go there. So yeah. This though I'm not sponsored yet, but my hope is one day. <laughs> <laughs> Rampant Publix, just free promos in right. this uh, this interview. Well, I mean, the other thing is that Publix is actually up there in terms of NPS in Florida than like the leading brands. It is it is like it's very clear that they've done something great and they've done something consistently great for everyone. This like all love Publix. Just saying, I'm not dealing with that. All all you Publix heads out there, you know, hit us in the comments. <laughs> Tell everyone how great it is. <laughs> What do they do? I've never been to one or spent a lot of time in Florida. Are they just uh, like something like Whole Foods or something? Yeah, it's, it's not just store. a supermarket, okay? It's a place where shopping is a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> we might want to go back. There's one question that I think I'd like to revisit, which was just what's that? the YHOA. Because I think that there's, there's an opportunity to explain our story. I don't, I don't know if anyone actually heard <laughs> heard about us, but where we are, where we are today. I was going to say, I think we might have missed the like, what's the company? Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, all right, let's, let's do that. So tell us a little bit about Cam Collective. I was about to say, tell us about Publix. Tell us a little bit about Cam Collective. <laughs> Please what's don't the... tell us anything more about Publix. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. So I think this 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 starts off because Jalen and I think a little bit differently. I think I'm a, I'm a bit more of like a top down thinker, right? You read a bunch of really great sims and books, and then you come up with a thesis and you figure that out, right? I think Jalen is engineering mind. He's the kind of person that just kind of starts from the bottom up, and so the way we decided to do this was. HOA wasn't necessarily the first place to start. We actually decided that we were going to look at a number of different industries. So we went and built a small framework, followed that, had conversations. And after I was able to accomplish getting to the end of the internet, doing as much top, top down research as I could, I got there really quickly and realized there wasn't much you could really do. But from the bottom up, what you could do is go out there and talk to owners. And so what we did was, we would have conversations with owners in a bunch of different industries and just learn and get a better perspective. So we did that basically during the fall of 2020. And we had conversations with owners in this spin, the HOA industry, which I think was really fascinating for us because it was a time when in the market, you know, this is the middle of the, the pandemic, most business owners are po- talking about the problems that they're facing. But instead, these owners are talking about how they couldn't sort of staff for all the growth they were experiencing. Because as people were staying home, you know, communities become a bigger part of their lives. They started paying attention to those things. And so then they started doing more work within their community that turned into more work for the manager. So that was actually really fascinating for us. And what you learn about the HO industry when you look online is that it's extremely big, extremely fragmented. It's benefiting from the fact that there's 60%. So 25% of homes are in association, yet 60% of every new home, so I guess six out of every 10 homes are being built in an association. And you know that there are 360,000 associations in the United States. And so it's large. It's very fragmented. There are four to 7,000 management companies out there as well. So you feel really good knowing that if we're trying to find one, we're going to find one in a pool of 4,000 to 7,000. And so I think what we also learned in that process, having conversations with those owners is none of them go to sleep worried about losing their customers. And that's for two reasons. One is because they have multiple, they have many, most management companies have over a hundred. I would say they have, they can have a small portfolio, but they, the customer is a smaller percentage of overall revenue relative to, another business where you might have a large customer. And the other is, at the end of the day, uh, we just looked at some of the public companies out there and we saw that their revenue has basically been flat or up for the past 20 plus years, right? Just showing you that the category is just extremely stable and constantly growing. And I think the reason why that's the case is because you're providing a very necessary service and you're also taking care of HOAs. And as you know, HOAs are really good paying customers because they're getting money from assessments and assessments are pretty much just good as taxes. So they're pretty money good. And then as we dug in, had the chance to see a couple of, of financials for companies as we were having chats with owners, I think we just realized that it was a really attractive business model, right? So you've got that stable on market. You've got a business where 90 to 95% of your customers stay. And you've got a business where, because it's a people business, laptops are really your only expenditure, ongoing expenditure and a lease, and all the other sort of services you're paying for, paper and so on. So your margins are people, certain certain expenses, 
and then from EBITDA or earnings, like from that from that level of profit going down to free cash flow is pretty great because at the end of the day, you are one of the many vendors that you're because let me take a step back here. You're providing a necessary service for your uh, communities, and what you're doing in that process is managing their bank accounts in order to help them with putting the vendors necessary to help serve their community. And you are one of those vendors. So you basically make sure that you are paying everyone on time, including yourself. And that creates a really good working capital dynamic for your business. So for us, that means limited networking capital needs and your profit therefore goes down bottom line. You basically, your earnings is your free cash flow. And so I think all those things just made it seem like it was a good enough business to run. So what about using a holding company approach versus any of the other models that are you know, common in ETA? Yeah, that, that came from talking to a pretty large group of owners where we just kind of learned that they had a choice, right? So when, when owners are looking to sell, they thought to themselves, well, I can sell to my family, I can sell to my employees, or I can sell to one of the large consolidators out there. And I think that a lot of the sellers first were concerned about having to sell one, their family members don't want it. Two, their employees don't really have the capital to be able to buy their business from them. And then three, they don't necessarily want to sell to one of the big guys out there because the big guys promise is typically something along the lines of coming in with a process that's going to change the name of the, on the door. It's going to change their system and process. It's going to change their software. It's going to change. They're going to lose half their staff in some instances. And so that just doesn't seem like an appealing choice to them as well. And so we thought, well, we don't necessarily need to, we could just promise not to do those things. And that's going to basically allow us to have multiple members within a collective of independently managed management companies. And so that sort of reversed us into a scenario where we had a large decentralized network of management companies to work with. And I think that sort of was the beginnings of the, the CAM collective. I think then as we got really excited about the idea of managing this decentralized network, we thought about all the different ways we could help grow them. And so basically establishing a center that sits on top the member companies and provides all the resources that any large buyer or any large management company would be able to provide any of their individual branches, we would be able to get those resources and provide them to the member companies. Thank you both for coming on the podcast. It's been so good to see you guys and chat more. Love getting to hang out. We could probably chat for hours about everything under the sun and all the different rabbit holes, but thanks for sharing a little bit of time. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, Ravix Group, Overly Risk Strategies, and Oakborn Advisors for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast. Mm-hmm.